We're going to continue our study in 1 Peter, and we will start in chapter 4. We remember that Peter is writing to a much persecuted church. And so we'll see all throughout chapter 4 how this is going to minister to such an audience specifically. And then at the end, we'll take a look at it and see how it would minister to us today. Perhaps an application that we can take away from it, altogether being in a rather different situation than Peter's original audience. But first Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the, le in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And when we see there in verse 1, Christ's suffering, we rewind a little bit to chapter 3, verse 18, and we understand that to be pointing specifically at Christ's suffering on the cross. And as much as that is what it is directly referencing, I don't think the reference stops there. Very often when we speak of Christ's suffering, we reference Calvary and what he experienced there on the cross. But as we go back and look throughout all of Scripture, that was not the extent of Christ's suffering here on the earth. Some of the things that popped out to me as I was looking them over, we read that the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. I think any of us would consider being a relatively homeless wanderer to fall under the category of suffering. Episodes of Christ's weariness where he would physically feel power leave from him in the midst of healing, just dealing with the crowds and the incomprehensibly abundant needs that would be brought to him. So not only was he crucified, but he was taxed. We have to remember he still had all the same human limitations that we did. He was rejected. He was alienated. I think there are elements of Christ's entire earthly experience that can be categorized as suffering. But then we're called to put on the same mind. And so in light of that, we have to ask, well, what mind is that? What mindset? Arm yourselves also with the same mind. I think that mindset would be simply put as this. If we're walking in the center of God's will, we should expect that path to be paved with stones of suffering. If we're walking in God's will, we should expect to be accompanied by suffering. Now, likely that suffering will not be to the same exaggerated extent as we find evidenced in Christ's life. And that suffering could be very much so tailored to each of our individual experiences. But nonetheless, our lives walking in the center of God's will for us as his children will be characterized by suffering. And then we get to a peculiar phrase. 
For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a rather difficult thing to interpret. That is until we come to the realization that Peter is laying out two options. He says, you are either obedient to the will of God or you are in sin. Those are the two options that Scripture presents. There is suffering or there is sin. And so, it then makes a little bit more sense when we see, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Looking backwards, chronologically, the individual, the person who experienced suffering for the Lord's sake, experienced suffering warring against their own flesh, was by very nature of being obedient to God, fleeing from sin. Does that mean that there's a certain level of suffering and, and we will no longer sin? Or in that pursuit, in that suffering, we will be completely removed, completely absolved from sin? No, no, certainly. Certainly not. But when we pursue a path of God-ordained, Father-filtered, suffering for His name's sake. We will be driven, we will be pursued, we will be drawn by the love of Christ rather than the lusts of our flesh. Some other passages of Scripture that I think help us to put this in context, this Suffering in the flesh resulting, in, or not resulting in, but do you see how these two things are happening concurrently, even though it's speaking about it in the past tense? Suffering for the will of God is by its very nature the opposite of sin, right? If the question is Jesus or not Jesus, not Jesus is always sin in comparison. Because we're either obedient to God's will or we are disobedient to God's will. And when we put it in those terms, it's a lot easier to understand, okay, sin or not sin, right? We're being obedient to God or we're being disobedient to God. Whether scripture lays that out in black and white uh, or not. But we look at Galatians 5.24 and it says... And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucifixion, that imagery that's used there, is not intended to be cruelty-free. That context, that word picture, has the suffering that Peter is referencing associated with it. That's not like he who took the flesh and tucked it away neatly and locked it behind a padlock. You know, like, ah, that's a, no. The flesh must be crucified. That's painful. That's suffering. It's a war. Christ also said in Luke, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Also, not easy work. 
every day, taking up a cross to what? To walk to your own death. To walk to the, the sacrificing of your own flesh. Then we see in verse 2 that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the, lust, er, in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And there Peter presents that duality. There is no in-between. Either you, will no, you no longer should, you are either living your time in the flesh for the lusts of men or for the will of God. And when we embrace suffering as God has called us to, right? Not suffering for suffering's sake, not suffering for the wrong reason, which Peter will touch on later in the chapter, but by leaning in to the suffering that God is calling us to, we are running towards God, thus running away from sin. We are actively pursuing the will of God. Therefore, we are fleeing from the lusts of our flesh. Verse 3, he explains or details some of what that looks like. He says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. It's easy to look at those overt, grotesque, heinous sins, if you will, and say, whew, okay, good. That definitely doesn't apply to me. <laughs> Check mark. I have skipped out on all the drinking parties and all the lewdness. But then there's that bigger category. You know, certainly many of those sins were stereotypical of the culture surrounding Peter's audience. Sometimes I think the sins of our culture take on a rather different characteristic. And maybe we don't even identify it with that concept of sin, but perhaps the concept of living uh, for the living, doing the will of the Gentiles. Oftentimes, we draw a category around what the world looks like, and that is typified by many of the sins that Peter delineates. And we think if we are avoiding those sins, if we're not doing the things that the world does, then we're, we're therefore doing the godly thing. But Peter here, I think, is positing a higher standard. Because he is not only calling us to avoid these things that are clearly, grotesquely against the will of God, but to do something that much more difficult and pursue a life that would entail suffering for the Lord's sake, which is an altogether different thing. 
we move on. And Peter puts this in a larger context. He zooms out a little bit. Verse 5, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. number of different intelligent interpretations of this verse. And no matter which way you choose to slice it, there are certain realities that this points at, that is in harmony with the rest of the Word of God that we can take away with us. One, there is no escaping God's judgment. Those that are alive today, those that have already passed, without Christ, you will experience the Lord's judgment. There's also this acknowledgement that when we put on this same mind, when we put on this attitude of pursuing a life that involves suffering for the Lord's sake, we will be judged and reviled by men. It was the treatment our Savior received. We should not expect any different treatment. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. From the time that Christ was incarnate and walked among men and preached the gospel, those that chose to follow him experienced suffering and persecution. Especially amongst the early church, when those that were in opposition to Christ would see the death of a believer, the culmination of their life on this earth in, by many standards, what would be interpreted as worse circumstances than when they aligned themselves with Christ. They would see that as justification for their position. But Peter here encourages the church that's experiencing that persecution, even those brothers and sisters that have passed, even those that are dead, they heard the gospel that even though they were to be judged by men while they were here in the flesh, they now live according to God in the Spirit. Their treatment here on this earth was no better than what you re you're receiving now. But their reality their spiritual reality, even now, though they were judged by men, they live eternally through God. And then Peter transitions from an external look to an internal look. 
He turns his eyes towards having put on this mindset. Now, what are we to do? Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. When we put on this mindset and then ask ourselves, Lord, now what? Okay, having put on the same mind that Christ suffered, and so I should have that same mind. I should have that same expectation. Lord, now what am I to do? Well, you can't do anything more than pray until you've prayed. Whatever the answer is, whatever answer the Lord gives each individual or each individual church or each collective group of churches, Peter continues to say that answer, among other things, will be characterized by love. Above all, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's such a beautiful truth, and it's true inside and outside of the church. But as believers, we should be known by our love for one another. And when our relationships are, are bathed in love, it's real easy to overlook the small stuff. Perhaps it's easier to, to think of examples of the opposite effect. When you're trying to hate someone, when you're looking to make someone the enemy, isn't it really, really easy to find evidence to prove your case? If you've already made up your mind about someone, that they are a bad guy, that they are this, that, and the other, we are very capable of finding evidence to prove the conclusion that we have already made. Because we see it through that lens. But Christ calls our relationships with one another as believers to be the exact opposite. Be so consumed with your love for one another. See this brother or sister as my child made in my image. How, if, if, if we have already settled that as true, how many of the other small things would we just be able to let slide off of us? And think about the rich benefits that would have for us as a church. There's, a, there's more than one person here, so that means we have the ability to rub each other the wrong way. Even your best friend, there are times when they're going to rub you the wrong way. Your spouse, your dog, it doesn't matter. That's how relationships work. But if our relationships are more than anything, first and foremost, typified by our great love for one another, that is going to save us so much trouble and angst and strife because there are battles we just won't fight. Not because we're choosing to pick our battles, but because it's, it's you know, it's no thing. If a stranger backs into my car, it's way different than if my wife backs into my car. I gotta try really hard not to look at Dade. <laughs> Dade is not my wife or a stranger. You can infer what he did <laughs> based on the other facts in the surrounding statements. 
moving right along. We were in the Bible. Verse 9. One manifestation of that love, that fervent love that Peter calls out, is hospitality. Verse 9. Wrong chapter. Okay, we're back, guys. Here we go. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, as we look forward at verse 10, it, it, it's, it's going to talk about all of our gifts in general, of which we know hospitality is one. And it seems like, well, well that's a peculiar choice to call out, Peter, like of, of all the gifts you could have highlighted and said like, hey, we need to love one another like really fervently. And hey, hospitality is one way we can do that. Like, interesting choice. But think about the context through which Peter is speaking, a persecuted church, a church where Christian fellowship is not only going to draw unwarranted attention, but amidst persecution, resources may have been scarce. And hospitality is so often characterized by generosity not only welcoming someone into your home, but, but sharing your resources and to do so without worrying or without grumbling. So I believe what Peter here is saying is in this context, speaking to his audience, fervent love for one another was exemplified by things like hospitality, but we can take from that that we should have fervent love for one another even when it costs even at our expense. Verse 10, if as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which with the ability which God supplies, then in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everyone in Christ Jesus has received a spiritual gift. At least one. And Peter separates those into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And I don't think the Lord would have us delve into the nature of those spiritual gifts as much as he would the exhortation. And as I look around the room tonight, the encouragement that the purpose of our gifts is to build one another up. They're to be used. They're not for us to keep, but for the edification of the body. That as we take whatever it is the Lord has given us and we pour it on a situation, we pour it into our church community, into our home, into our workplace, the believers in our workplace, because that is specifically the purpose of spiritual gifts, is ministry within the body of Christ that we would do two things. One, 
if it's a speaking gift, that we do so centered around the Word of God. If anyone speaks, speaks as though the oracles, I, I, I think a better word for that is utterances of God. We have the utterances of God. When we speak, when we exercise our gifts vocally, we're not going to improve on the Word of God. I know this. There are many times I said, I should have just got up there and read it and then sat down. But you all have such fervent love, I'm sure you just let that one slide. And when we serve, when we serve, when we minister helps or hospitality, so many of the other, the, the, the manifold grace, right? The many different facets, varied colors, is, is, is what the word is pointing at. When we serve in that way, do so with the strength which God has given you. That encourages me in two ways. One, it says God will give me strength. And two, it says that that's enough. So if we show up to a task and we need strength, he will give it to us. And if we have shown up to a task and we feel like we do not have that strength, that's, that's our perception. It's not because the Lord is stingy. It's not because the Lord does not keep his promises. Oftentimes we can look to our left and to our right and say, that's what this gift is supposed to look like. That's how this ministry is supposed to look like. If the Lord has called you to that ministry and he has not given whatever you, you, you think it should be, have, have confidence that the Lord has given you what you need. He's not going to be disappointed. If you're ministering in his strength, then if he wants you to be stronger, he'll give it to you. So therefore, we find our confidence in whatever area of service that as long as we are doing it in the Lord's strength and not in our own, that however abundant or however seemingly insufficient that strength might be, if we're doing it in the Lord's strength, everything else is not your problem. That's, that's encouraging to me because the Lord calls us to do difficult things. The Lord calls us all to do things where we feel like our strength is insufficient. And even we feel like, okay, Lord, give me strength. And earnestly, honestly, we do that. And then we go forward and we're like, Lord, I don't feel like you gave me enough strength. No, we're, we're called to minister in the strength that he gives us. That doesn't mean that we will always feel like the biggest, baddest squirrel in the acorn tree. Sometimes it's not. But our Father says, if you're doing this in my strength, what's not important is whether you think you're strong enough, but you submitting in obedience and, and, and faith and saying, okay, Lord, this is, this is what you gave me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. However scary or however uncomfortable that may be, that's an encouragement, whatever God calls us to. 
And then Peter turns from serving back to suffering. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And we've hinted at it a number of times this evening. But our walk with Christ is not, in this life, experientially more pleasant. Not by the metrics, not measured in the things that, that we first want to measure. Comfort and security and success and well-being and health. Those are, those are measurement standards of our flesh. Those are the things when we talk about the will of the Gentiles. Set aside that list of sins. Set aside overt sinful behavior. And tell me the characteristic of what the world looks like. The world is interested in building themselves up. So often today in our context, I think about the vestiges of the American dream. Get smart, go to college, get a great job, do the best you can in your job. And it's not that we shouldn't do everything heartily as unto the Lord, but, but this concept of success, that many times is a, is a worldly metric. And we lose sight of some of the biases that we brought to the cross. We lose sight of some of the baggage that we carry to our life in Christ because our flesh is so deceptive. And I think the best way that I can illustrate this point is with my daughter. I did not know how sexist I was until I had a baby girl. I did not consider myself a sexist person, but then I looked at this child and I realized that I did not see her as a commander of the Air Force. I would look at her and I would say, Oh, you're so beautiful, you're so sweet. What if she's not beautiful and sweet? She's still my little girl. So I understood that there were, there were preconceptions that, that, that were in me that I was not aware of up to that point. And I think Christ, as he makes us new creations in him, wants to continually uncover some of those preconceptions we have about what life is and what life should be. And so I take this concept, I take this thought, and I set that back on top of what does putting on 
the mind of Christ with respect to suffering have for our Christian walk? It's a Wednesday. I understand that those of you who are here, by definition, already understand that discipleship under Christ is not always convenient. There are many of you that had a long day at work. It was not convenient to come to church. Yet you did. Many of you in this room have long weeks and it's not convenient to serve a whole Sunday at church. Being one of the first ones in the door and being one of the last ones out of the door. There is an element of suffering in that. The things that God calls us to do are not pleasant to our flesh. The things that God calls us to pursue often have consequences on what we want. When we retire or have a day off of work, our first thought is not, man, how can I redeem this for the kingdom? <laughs> like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to go to work every week now. I can spend all my time, you know, doing X, Y, or Z that God has called me to. And you're just like, I just worked 40 years. I'm a, I'm a chillax for a minute. We don't naturally pursue discomfort. And, and we identify that. We see that in many aspects of our Christian walk. So I'm not saying that you don't. And we do it because we know that that's where God is. Because we know that that's what God has called us to. But I think that there's an issue of perspective. And we're all at different ends of the spectrum or at different points along the spectrum. But there's an issue of perspective when it comes to surrendering to God's will, crucifying our flesh and putting on the same mind that Christ had, that walking in the center of God's will for our life begins with fervent and serious prayer and is paved with suffering. I want to finish chapter 4. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Different aspect of what Peter has already said. When 
we are living for Christ, the world is going to treat us poorly. And that is much of the suffering that Peter is referencing directly, persecution. But like I said, today in America, even though we might see persecution nearer than we ever have, I cannot say I'm persecuted as a Christian. Not as a student of the Bible, not as a student of church history. I just barely crossed over into the minority and not even here in Wichita, in middle America. But when we're showing the world Christ, they will rightly see that come against us we should be happy because if they're coming against us, they must see the Savior in us that the, <laughs> that the world already treated poorly before he was living inside us. And in doing so, they also condemn themselves. They condemn themselves because you cannot escape God's judgment. As a believer or an unbeliever, as unbelievers, unbelievers will come before the great white throne and experience God's judgment and his wrath. But as believers, we'll come before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will account for our actions. Our salvation is not on the table. Our salvation and our righteousness with respect to sin is secured in Christ Jesus. But Christ may ask the question, where did you partake in my sufferings? How hard did you lean in to living in a way that was for me to your own detriment? And that's not to say that there's, I don't, I don't want to convey that there's anything righteous in in just pursuing suffering for suffering's sake. And he, he, he says some of that, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, right? There's, there's no righteousness in suffering for something that you deserve to suffer for. If you're a murderer and you're suffering in prison, well, that's kind of the way it goes. No Jesus brownie points here. But verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God. It is God's will that we suffer. It was God's will that Christ suffered. And it should be our will that we walk in Christ's footsteps. So ask yourself, what does that suffering look like? What does that suffering look like? Is that an extra evening in the Word, in study, or prayer? 
prayer wars against our flesh? Is it taking a, a one of your PTO days and serving at VBS? Well, I can use that example because we didn't have a VBS this year. I'm going to procure your situation because I don't want my brothers and sisters here to, to, to think that I'm... I'm Pitching, serving at the church. Like I have a conflict of interest. N no. I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard not to do that because I, I just want you to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter. That God uses suffering so richly. Look at what he did through Christ's suffering. And Peter here begs us, why do you think, why do you think that chapter four started with the suffering of Christ and then there was this part right in the middle about our gifts and how we can serve one another and how we can cover each other in love and then we go back to suffering. Be because serving costs. Every time we pour out of ourselves into someone else. It costs. And it's uncomfortable. And we don't like it, except for that's where God is, so we don't want to be anywhere else. Lean into the uncomfortable. Ask God, where is the suffering? Father, where can I suffer more? For your sake, not for suffering's sake. But God, where would you have me walk in your steps? Lord, thank you so much that you walked these steps first. God, as, as we look at your son, we, we know that we have a high priest who can, who can sympathize with each and every one of our weaknesses. Because he was tempted as we were tempted. Father, that, that means that there were Saturdays that, that Jesus didn't want to go to synagogue. Because that's a temptation. Father, even, even now, Lord, we desire to be obedient children. And we know that that answer is not black and white. We know that that answer looks like love. We know that that answer looks like you working in and through us. But we know that we'll only find that answer in prayer. So Father, thank you so much for the breath and the life and the opportunity that you have given us. Lord, Help us to crucify our own flesh that we would not shy away from the things you're calling us to because they would be sufferable, because they would be unpleasant. Because any of us would, would gladly walk through a thorn bush if we knew that our Savior was on the other side. Father, but you say you are there, you are amidst the suffering. You call us to walk in it. 
Lord, show us what that looks like in, in each of our lives. And Father, where we're doing it, Father, encourage us. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I thank you for all those before us in the faith that have set an example, Lord, those around us that encourage us. Father, strengthen us with your strength that you would receive all the glory. In your son's name, amen.